Feeling stuck in your private practice? Not sure of your direction? Worried about making changes in your mental health practice? Just getting started and need help? You've come to the right podcast. Welcome to PsychBiz. Welcome, listeners, to episode five of our podcast, Psych Biz. Sarah, how are you? I'm doing really well. How are you? I'm doing great today. It's a beautiful, cold day. And by the time our listeners reach this podcast, it will hopefully be a warm spring day. Wouldn't that be lovely? Absolutely. Today, I am really excited because we're going to talk about therapist directories. And I I know our listeners really want good information about how to get listed on them, which ones are the right ones to be listed, do I even need to be listed, all kinds of questions that I've gotten in my consultation practice over the years, and I'm sure you get a lot is as a web designer. Yeah, this is one of those topics that comes up a lot when people and I are you know, messaging on LinkedIn or having kind of first contacts. These are the kinds of questions that a lot of times people have, especially when they're kind of earlier on starting out, trying to get established. And therapist directories seem like, you know, both like a really great tool to use, but also can be a little bit overwhelming. There's a lot of decisions to make. Writing your bio can be intimidating. So it's a good process to kind of talk through and give people some tips and pointers about how to go about it. I find a lot of clinicians will ask me, do I even need to be listed on directories at all? Uh, Do you get that question? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it can be frustrating when the answer is it depends, but it's often it depends because it depends on where a person is in their career and what their goals are and what they're expecting as far as a result and whether that's a reasonable and realistic you know, result that they'll actually get or not. I mean, how would you answer somebody who asked you that? As a practice consultant, I often get this question actually. And the answer is, it depends. And really it depends because exactly what you said, first of all, where somebody is in their career. And then also, what are they trying to do? Like, what's the What's the aim of being on this directory? Uh, The first question I like to ask clients, consulting clients, is where are you getting your referrals from now? You know, um, and do you have a network of people that you work with in your own community? And how is that referral network working? You know, we talked about referral networks previous episode, and I think that that's a really pertinent question to ask because if you don't have a good amount of information about what they're trying to do by being on a listing, then you may end up putting yourself on a listing that you don't necessarily need to be on, or you're on the wrong listings. I know we're going to talk a little bit about what are the right listings and sites to to put your directory sites, to put your listing on and how do you write a good listing and, and whatnot. So it's not just um, those things, it's really, what is my aim? And that's a good, really good place to start with clients. I think, you know, with business owners, um, what is my aim and who am I trying to attract? Um, and especially online because a directory listing is a place where some people go after they already hear about you, 
but they really want to go to your website. And I know you, you, you know, you and I especially believe in trafficking them over to the website. And so maybe we could get into that a little bit. Like, let me ask you, is a directory listing kind of a portal to the website, do you think? So a lot of therapist directories will give you the option to put a link to your website as part of your profile. And so if you have that as an option, a lot of people will then, before they actually contact you, check out your website. And that is actually an advantage because one of the, you know, there's a, there are pros and cons to everything. And so one of the cons to therapist directories is that you do appear in a directory as part of essentially a list of a lot of other therapists. And so it's much harder to stand out on a directory and it does place you. And I don't think of therapists as being in competition with each other because I think everybody's trying to help people, but it does put you in a situation where you are more or less competing with all of the other therapists in the list. And it kind of can give the appearance of here are 20 or 30 therapists who are interchangeable because they're all in one big long list and you can see their little, qualifications or whatever. So, so yeah. Speaking of standing out, how does a therapist stand out in a therapist directory? Do you think? Well, I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with the writing of the bio. And I think that one of the really hard things is that you have to do a really good job of writing your profile in a way that is really engaging and informative and makes people feel comfortable with you. And that's a lot of goals to achieve in, you know, two to three paragraphs, but it can be done. And I think that it's really important. So first person or third person, what do you recommend? Oh my gosh, definitely first person. Would you agree with that? For sure. I think that it's more personable. You're speaking directly to the would-be new client that you're about to get. And I emphatically believe in doing it in the first person. It may be uncomfortable a little bit because, again, you're putting yourself out there in uh, with vulnerability. And I think it therapists in general, uh, I, I feel like I can say this, um, not always, but it's hard for them to be vulnerable on online, right? I mean, we're we're comfortable with a certain degree of vulnerability in teaching that and encouraging that in our session. But when we're putting ourselves out there on the internet like that, it's a little harder, I think, for most therapists. But I do recommend first person definitely. Right. You really want the therapist to create a feeling of a conversation with the person who's reading their bio and for the person to feel that they're very approachable. So if you write it in the third person, it will automatically feel a lot more formal, a lot more reserved, and that will be less of a warm and inviting experience for the person who's reading uh, the person's profile. What are some things that you think are really important to make sure that they include in their profile? So it's my experience that you must have a photo of yourself um, if the directory allows photos. Some, a few still don't require photos uh, or, well, I don't think photos are required, obviously, but most directories now allow you to have a photo. Now, there are some directories that are sort of listings that are free, and we'll talk about some of those hopefully a little in a little bit, but that if you have the option of putting a professional photo in, put a professional photo in. And again, um, my opinion, I'm, I'm interested in your take on this, is make sure it's a, a good photo. 
right? I mean, you can still take a good photo with your phone, but make sure you think about the background and the clothing that you're wearing. And I would even go as far as recommending maybe uh, uh, using a photo that you've used on your website of you. That photo might be a good photo in the directory listing so that you create sort of a seam uh, or seamlessness, a, a connection between the two sites, your website and the directory listing site that you're on. Absolutely. And you want to use a recent photo. And I know that sometimes what happens is that people, you know, 10 years ago, you had a professional headshot taken and you wish you still looked like you did those 10 years ago. And then it can be hard to get a new photo and put that up, right? Don't don't I still look like I did 10 years ago? You look exactly the same, just like I do. But other people (laughs) who experience things like aging and other things, those people might feel reluctant to update their photo. Um, But you want to have a recent photo because you want the person to actually recognize you when they see you. You want the person to have an expectation of who you really are and what the experience is going to be like to sit down in a room with you. And you have to have a nice, you know, engaging photo that is a real representation of who you are right now. Yeah, for sure. So we talked about having a photo and we talked mm-hmm. about writing the profile in the first person. Let's talk about content in the profile because I think content is really important. Um, you know, a lot of these online directories, they give you a lot of freedom of what you can put in. And yet at the same time, they, they have some limitations to what kind of content you can put in. So what's been your experience with content in terms of what online listings will allow and, you know, in terms of limitations and freedom. And what do you recommend for content? Well, you definitely want to give people kind of core pieces of information, such as location information. You want to give people information about your qualifications. And you also want to talk about what you specialize in. And I think this is one of the dangers that sometimes with the uh, online directories is that you can click boxes, right? They'll give you a list of like these, you know, what things do you specialize in? And it can be tempting to over select and just click a lot of those things because maybe theoretically, yes, you've studied this or yes, you've worked with a few clients who, you know, had this particular issue or challenge. But I think we have to encourage people to resist the urge to to over state or kind of be too general in the things that they specialize in. Just like I would, when I was talking to someone about their website, encourage people to really be specific, be thoughtful and identify who you really work with really well and talk about that in a really specific way. It's much better to connect with a smaller number of people than to be kind of a generalist and say, I can do anything. I can help anybody. You know, I can help anybody and their sister. You want to be very thoughtful and and really emphasize those areas that are true areas of specialty for you. I appreciate that. Uh, I, I think a lot of clinicians do want to list their specialties in terms of who am I willing to treat, right? Rather than who do I really like to treat? And part of that mentality is driven, you may not know this, but it's driven by the managed care companies if you work with managed care. Because what they do is when you're filling out applications to be on a managed care panel, the managed care company wants to know 
every area that you focus on. And they let you pick up to like 10 areas or something like that. And they call them specialties as well. So a lot of the advice that is given to clinicians around the managed care application process is to check the boxes as many as you can. And that way you'll get more referrals from the managed care company. I don't believe that that is necessarily true. Necessarily true. I think that 20 years ago, that type of philosophy fit and it held, but so many people are going into niche work now. And I agree with you that having one to three specialties that you do really well with, and if you have just one, then just talk about the one. A lot of listings, a lot of sites that create these directories, they give you a, an opportunity to share a brief narrative about you. And in that narrative, I think, yes, you talk about your top one or two or three specialties. And then if they do have a checkbox and the checkbox says that something like, I work with these, uh, these populations or these issues, you can add more, but I wouldn't, I agree with you not to have a, an exhaustive list that basically says I treat everything. So in other words, what stands out is um, these are the things I'm really good at and that I really like these one or two or three things. And this is my background that's in the narrative. And oh, by the way, I also work with a few other people as well. And in my book, I talk about the concentric circles of service orientation. You can find that in one of the chapters of private practice essentials. And basically what I talk about, and I think this philosophy has held fairly solid over the years. And that is that if you can imagine a dartboard and on that dartboard inside the bullseye is the one, maybe two things that you really do well, right? That should be highlighted on your directory listing and should stand out on your directory listing. And then the next concentric circle scores a lot of points like you would on a dartboard, but it's not a hundred points like a bullseye. And so that next piece might be the next two or three or four things that you really love to do, but you're not necessarily an expert in it, if that makes sense. And then that the makes third, complete sense. And then the third ring is what do I, what am I willing to do? And am I competent in doing right? And that's really all you should have on the checkbox. Really. I, I wouldn't even put everything on that third ring if I were you. So that's really important advice. And then you can always change your listing. If you want more clients that you do trauma with, let's say you do trauma and you want more trauma clients, then you keep trauma on there and you uncheck parenting skills. If you do that sort of thing, or, you know, you, you can go in and a lot of clinicians put their directory listing up and they forget about it. And I think it's really important to recognize that you're paying for a service that may need changes from time to time. So one thing I recommend is regardless of which directories that you join is that you put a note in your calendar once every quarter to review your listing, to make sure that you're getting the clients that you're wanting from these sites. And it's equally as important. Ask the client, how did you hear about me? I always say this. How did you hear about me? Oh, I found you on this directory listing. Great. Log that. So you know who's looking, not just data that you can see in your analytics, but who's really looking at my profile. I think that is amazing advice. And I love 
the idea of really tracking. And especially from the people who are first coming to you when they're first coming to you as a new client, those are the people who you really want to know more so than just an overall percentage of click-throughs or whatever, those kinds of non-personal, just like numbers, but to really know this person is a new client. How did they connect with me? How did they find me? And keeping track of that in some kind of a concrete way so that you can track it over time is really, really good. And I just wanted to also make a suggestion for one thing, because we were talking about all of the different things that you want to talk about in your profile and how you want to kind of expand on it. And I know that writing that can be really, really difficult. And the idea of writing your profile can be intimidating. Even people who are good writers can find it very difficult to write about themselves. It feels very very uncomfortable. And especially for a therapist who's used to putting the focus on other people, going and changing that and putting the focus on yourself can feel uncomfortable. So one thing that I sometimes suggest to people is that you can use dictation software to give yourself an opportunity to talk rather than type, because that can feel a lot more natural, can feel a lot more conversational, and it can help to kind of de-stress the situation and give you an opportunity to just kind of talk and talk and get some words on the page to give you kind of a basis for then using that to really craft your profile. And so if you have Google Docs, you can go, there's a dictation option right in there and you can just click it and talk to your computer the way that you would talk to a client who asked about, you know, tell me a little bit about your specialties or how you work with clients and just talk and let the computer write it out for you. It won't be perfect, but it will give you kind of a base to then take and revise and really use that. And and sometimes people find that as a super helpful way to kind of get started without all of the anxiety that's part of like sitting down in front of a blank piece of paper and now tell me everything about the core of who you are as a clinician and what you do, which can be really difficult. I really love that idea. A lot of clinicians accidentally stumble upon these software applications within the internet, like this Google Doc voice dictation, but we're not looking for these things. And so, uh, of course, in the day and age of doing a lot more remote and online therapy, we're finding them a lot more quickly now, but therapists in general, we don't love to use these applications, but when we find them and we take a risk to dive into them, they become very useful. And so there's that experience. And I would imagine some of the younger therapists who grew up with this kind of technology, it's a little easier. But for many, as I mentioned in a previous episode, it can be difficult and challenging to connect with those applications. And I love the suggestion because there are many clinicians that have a hard time sitting down and writing and that actually can speak into a microphone and then hear hear it back and dictate it in there can really be valuable in terms of writing a solid profile. Yeah. So let's say somebody has kind of that basis of their profile, but they want someone to give them feedback. They're not sure. They want, you know, someone to review it, give them comments, help them to make sure that they're doing it right. This is something that people sometimes ask me, like, how would you suggest someone get some support once they have that kind of draft of their profile? How would they get some feedback and get some support in making sure that it's right? Absolutely, because often clinicians don't feel very sure of themselves in terms of what they're writing. And the first thing I'd recommend is to share with a few trusted colleagues, right? I I have this philosophy of share it with a colleague or a mentor in the field and share it with a friend or and and or a mentor outside of the field, right? So that you get some feedback about 
what does this look like to a lay person? And what does this look like to the professional? And I would maybe pick three of each if you can. Uh, you know, I'm a participant and a member in several Facebook groups, professional Facebook groups, and I see clinicians all the time saying, what do you think about this for my logo or for my profile or for, you know, this or that? And, you know, this, what do you think of my photos? You know, they'll share photos that they're putting on their website. Um, and I think that can be a really valuable experience, but don't just go to one source. Use a multiple sources in your feedback. Uh, and of course, I, I get this question a lot in my consultation practice. When I'm working with uh, actual clients on their private practice, I will review those things with them and be a second set of eyes. Even then, I will say to the, to the consultee, who else have you shown this to? And what have they said? And then I'll run them through an exercise where I say, tell me more about what you feel about it. Because oftentimes what happens is, is they, there's, they're confident about certain areas, they're insecure about other areas, or they don't feel so good about other areas. And we, we almost use a therapeutic narrative dialogue to work through the emotional parts of doing this kind of this task that seems easy on paper, but it's pretty challenging. That is brilliant. I love that so much. It makes so much sense and it sounds so helpful and like you said, it might seem simple on paper, but this is really asking a lot. You're asking someone to summarize so much about who they are and what they do in this very, very short area. Um, and it's really that the process that you go through with people sounds extremely helpful. Sarah, what about website links? Because I know therapist directories will allow you to put your website on there. And then, you know, do you recommend that? Do you recommend putting a link uh, to the therapist directory on your website? What are your thoughts about sort of linking to the website? So this is a really, really important question because it's really important to get right. So you want to have a link from the therapist directory to your website, but you absolutely do not want to have a link on your website to the therapist directory. And so obviously, right, the reason is People are going to go to the therapist directory if that's where they're encountering you for the first time. They find you on the therapist directory. They see you have a website. They want to get a better idea of who you are. They can click over to the website, think, oh my goodness, this person is so professional, so compassionate. This person seems to focus a lot on the issues that are really relevant to me. I want to reach out to this person. That's perfect. But if a person comes to you on the, through your website, right, they do a Google search or a friend tells them your name and they search you and they find you. The last thing you want is for that person to be clicking around on your website and see a logo or something to one of these directories and click on it and then be like, oh, wow, this is a directory. Why don't I just search for, you know, someone near me? And like you lose that person. So you don't want to put links that lead people away from your website onto your website. And you have to be careful because a lot of places have badges that they will give out. And those badges automatically have a link that goes back to their website. So you might want to have pictures of the badges on your website so that you can show that you're legitimate, that you're approved by so whomever it might be, right? You want to remove the link. You don't want to make that a link that would take people away from your website into a place where all of a sudden they're going to be confronted with a hundred other therapists. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, so driving traffic to your website is the goal. 
And the other part of the goal, part B, is, is not driving traffic away from your website, even if it's going to some other information about you. The, right. The, yeah. And just as a side note, this is also one of the reasons that I encourage people not to overemphasize social media links on their website. Because even if you have a great Facebook presence or a great Instagram presence and you're amazing at social media, once someone comes to your website, you don't want them to go and start futzing around on Instagram. You want them to contact you. And so on your website, any kind of distracting links that lead people to another forum should always be de-emphasized or eliminated. I like that. And if you do like to work with social media, share things that have a landing page on your website, right? Links that yes. go back to your website. I know yes. we're getting a little off topic, but my guess is that that's an important point. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Question. Let's talk about types of directories for a minute. Because I think there's, you know, when we think about therapist directories, most people think about the more, more popular ones. And we're not going to mention them by name because they're easy to find. And many therapists can find these, the names of these, these directories. And I don't want to uh, create bias or anything related to what the right directories are. Because to me, it's not brand name that necessarily that's important. It's really what your needs are. That being said, I want to maybe spend a few minutes talking about the what I would consider the three different types of directories and um, also challenging you, the listener, to think a little bit about what your needs are. It may be that you don't even need to be on a directory right now, but that you plan to participate on a directory down the road uh, strategically or serendipitously depending on your needs, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, absolutely. So what do you think are the main like categories? Sure. So I've broken them into three categories. The the first is the general therapist directory, right? This is a directory that any therapist can join. It's usually a fee for service directory. It can cost anywhere from $25 to $40 a month depending on um, you know, what what directory it is and whether you're partnering with some of their other services. A lot of these mainstream directories partner with uh, client EMR, uh, online EMR, electronic medical record uh, programs and things like this. So you just have to kind of see what fits for you. And many of these, especially general directories, will give you free offers, right? Like six for six months free. And, um, you know, they'll, you have to be careful because what they'll do is they'll, they'll verify you and they'll promote you as a top person on that directory for that six months to, to get you to stay. In other words, you might get a higher amount of referrals in that first six months and then see your referrals drop off because they've moved you down to the bottom part of the directory. And this is one of the dangers of directories. And all of a sudden you're hooked into paying um, your fee or you're on the directory and you don't even start thinking about the fee because you've gotten three or four clients a month, which is pretty significant for a directory, by the way. Um, and, and then all of a sudden that drops off. So you have to kind of be really mindful about, this is why I recommend every three months you're evaluating how much contact am I getting from my investment, right? And that's an important business principle to pay attention to. So that's the general directory. Uh, and then, and, and usually these general directories are very meaty in, meaty in terms of 
content that you can put in. So it's nice. They have a good service. They're they're often very good. They're well searched. That's the other thing. Uh, you know, a lot of lay people and consumers know either already know about it or they find out about the directory very quickly. So pretty high payoff for traffic. Although your comment earlier, you're in a sea of other therapists that is widely expanding in your area. So you need to consider that. Then there are the directories that I would call niche directories. And I want you to talk a little bit about what a niche directory is. Absolutely. And I love these. The idea is that these directories are specific to smaller groups of the population who might be underserved or underrepresented. And a lot of these have been springing up recently and they specialize in giving therapists who are part of a particular community or serve a particular community need an opportunity to connect with the people who are looking for therapists who have those focuses. And so those are really great to use if you're part of one of these communities as a way to connect with the people who are looking for you. So there are several of those that are kind of popping up. Um, some of them have been around for a little bit longer. Some of them are really new, um, but it's a great place to, you know, to explore how you might be able to connect with the people who are part of, you know, a minority group. I like those directories because they're very specific. In fact, the the writing of the content does itself because writes itself because you're basically already in the niche, the niche of what you do. So for example, you know what came to mind for me is I know a lot of people that are I'm in I'm in the world of couples therapy. It's one of my specialties. And many of my couples therapist colleagues uh, do training with famous couples therapists. And then they, in their certification program and on their website, give you uh, a listing in their directory for, you know, specific training. Like I'm, you're a certified so-and-so specialist in couples therapy on that particular website. And uh, oftentimes it doesn't cost anything because the fee is either included in some sort of annual dues or you attended their workshop, their level two master workshop for, you know, $1,500 and they give you the directory listing for free. I like those. I think they're worth it. You've already invested the money and the time in becoming certified. So those are fabulous directories to be on. Uh, I, I still think that it's worth considering being on other directories, right? So the third type of directory is what I would call the professional organization slash managed care directory. And I kind of lumped those into the same category because we often don't think about these as listings, right? We think of a membership in our professional organization as a membership. And why would anybody go to a professional organization listing? But you'd be surprised at how easy it is to find people in a professional organization. A lot of people would prefer that over a commercial site search for uh, therapists. And so there's that. And then of course, if you work with managed care companies, you have a free listing, but it's not so free because you're agreeing to the managed care rate by being in their network. So you're getting the whole package by agreeing to their contracted rate. One of the nice things is though, you are in not just listings that consumers can go online to look for, but when an insured would-be patient calls the insurance company, for a referral in a, you know, for a unique specialty, that referral agent on the phone is looking on their internal list. So you, you end up getting on a lot of internal lists 
that way. And so these other forms of directories are often ones that we don't think about. And I think it speaks to diversification. My recommendation is to consider diversifying and being on a number of different directories because as you and I've talked about before, Sarah, there's diminished value in putting all of your eggs in one basket. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. I think having multiple streams of where people are able to find you is really key. And I've had experience with a client who was listed on a particular directory and then for various reasons, no longer felt comfortable being on that directory and was able to say to me, well, you know, that used to be my primary source of clients, but now so many people are coming to me directly through my website. I don't even need it anymore. So it's fine. And I think that's a really good example of how having those multiple streams, those multiple places where people are finding you is so crucial because you never know, especially directories are phenomenal and really, really good, but you also want to remember that they don't belong to you and that you don't control them. So they can go out of business. They can embrace a policy that you find ethically problematic. They can, you know, change their algorithm so that suddenly, no matter what you do, you're not getting visible in the way that you want to be. Whatever it might be, I think these are fantastic tools to use, but we also want to keep a number of tools in our toolkit and have different ways that we're connecting with people so that if one of them stops working, you don't find yourself all of a sudden in a really difficult situation. All extremely relevant and fabulous points. I want to close today by talking about another issue that can come up with directories that I think is pertinent for our listeners, and that is the difference between being on a directory and being listed in a directory that you have control over that listing and then being on a site that actually lists you in a directory type format only offers reviews from other consumers or even current for, or former clients. So let's be let's talk about that for a minute, shall we? Absolutely. I think it's a really important point because those kinds of review sites can be difficult to navigate for a variety of reasons. Yes, and I find that a lot of clinicians wind up on these sites really by accident. What happens is is that some entity gathers enough information and when you put yourself on paid sites, they will move you into, especially if they find your location and they find out more information about you, they will put you on a review site. I won't mention any names of the review sites, but you can you can imagine some of you listeners already probably know of those. And uh, basically, you it opens you up for getting uh, reviews that certainly are good, which is a good thing, but uh, you will also be open to getting reviews that aren't so good and that also may actually enter into the issue of ethics and legal uh, considerations. So I had an experience where I was doing my public speaking several years ago and I was in California and uh, was running this training on building private practice, the very kinds of topics we're talking about. And at the break, one of the participants came up to me and said, I am blown away. This is fabulous. I was really expecting to not have a very good experience. And I said, what, why, what made you say that think that you weren't going to have a good experience? And she said, oh, um, I Googled you and you had these bad reviews. Oh no. I, I, I had no idea. I had no idea that I had some bad reviews. And I was, and it turned out that three weeks prior, 
to that talk I gave, this must've been 2014, I think, uh, somebody, I had a really difficult patient. They left the, they left, they, I'm sure you listeners know what I'm talking about because uh, oftentimes you get a, an acts of two client or uh, somebody that's overly narcissistic and doesn't want to participate, you know, high risk type of client. And they wrote a review. They found a review site. They wrote a review. And I spent hours and days going through trying to figure out how to get that review off. And I know you're going to share a story in a moment about that as well. I think that uh, if you get a bad review and you're not asking for reviews, and by the way, this is something I'm going to tell you, the listener, and this is super important. Do not ask for reviews. If you want to have reviews on any part of your online presence, you must have 100% control over them and do not ask for reviews from clients. You can get a review from another clinician or somebody that knows you, but, or, you know, if you have it on LinkedIn, but I don't allow any of my clients to connect with me on social media. I think it's a violation, ethical violation. I do not allow for any direct reviews from clients, even if they're disguising their name, because they can talk about an issue and it might increase the likelihood that they could be identified. And so this is, was my stance when I contacted the company that allowed the review to be on was you are violating the ethics of my, of my profession. We have a very highly sensitive confidential profession and please do, please remove this review. I'm sure we'll get comments um, about this episode regarding uh, listener experiences with reviews. And in fact, I would love your comments about your experiences so that others can learn from how you dealt with having reviews because Putting yourself out there on directory listings is yet another way that other agencies or internet companies can gather information and ask for reviews. So stay away from asking for reviews. When you find a review that is listed on a site that you didn't approve, don't panic. Uh, you can always contact me as a, uh, I offer that service as a consultant. And also there are other experts in our field that uh, specialize in helping you get your reviews taken down. Right. Sarah, what, tell us about your experience as well. So I've worked with some people specifically who are, uh, who are in a position where they're sometimes testifying in court. And I've, I'm sure you can imagine that when you testify in court, sometimes people get a little bit upset with you because they're, you know, it's very contentious and it's a, a very high emotion type situation. And so... I was in a position where a disgruntled person who didn't like what was said in a courtroom had then decided to try to get some sort of feeling of revenge by going to multiple places and saying a bunch of really, you know, non-flattering things. And as part of, you know, helping this clinician, I went through a process of contacting various places and saying, this is the situation. This is, you know, a problematic review because it's, based on this situation, we need you to take it down. And it happens that in my situation, I was able to get all of those reviews taken down because it was a very clear cut situation of, this is a person who didn't like what happened in a court proceeding. It's not a valid review and 
people listen to that. But I, I do know that sometimes getting a negative review, even one that's clearly biased or based on some sort of non-relevant experience to people who might be looking for a, a therapist, sometimes it can be very difficult to get those taken down. So I guess I, I, I am assuming that you'll agree with me, but you can tell me what you think. My first piece of advice, however, would be to never engage. If you see that somebody has left you a negative review, some of those review sites will give the opportunity where you can leave a reply and never, ever do that would be my suggestion. I'm interested to hear what you say, Howard, but I would say never engage um, for a variety of both ethical and also practical reasons. I think it hurts you a lot more than it helps. I do agree with that statement a hundred percent. And also would agree to tell, I would also say that uh, some advice givers say, bury those bad reviews with good reviews, like get reviews from other colleagues, go ahead and put, if you're going to have reviews on there, have other people write reviews and bury those bad reviews with other reviews. Now in a, in a, in an industry like ours, that is really bad advice. In my opinion, uh, in a consumer industry where you're talking about products or something like that, that might be different, but, uh, I, I just don't agree with that strategy. I think you take a hard line with the company that posted the review, you find ethical and legal wording in documents that talk about protecting patient rights. And, uh, at the very last case scenario, worst case scenario is you, you get a, a lawyer to, who, who's experienced with this sort of thing. And you, you, you have them write a letter to the company and kind of get, you know, do what you can to try to work with the company. But I, I again, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't get adver adversarial with the company either. I would try to develop a connection and, and educate that company and say, look, this isn't, this isn't really a, 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 a doing a value to, to our industry. And, and actually I went to battle with a very, very popular company that has a, their moniker on a, a tall skyscraper in Denver. Okay. And, <laughs> and, 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 and it wasn't adversarial at all. It was really educational. I have a relationship with them now. Uh, I brought other concerns up on behalf of other consulting clients. Um, and that's, that's why we established these collaborative relationships to protect the privacy of the work that we're doing and the clients who we serve in that work. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I think that's really, really an important point. Wow, we covered a lot today. I know. I, this was a fascinating I, conversation. I absolutely enjoyed it. Me too. And I hope you, the listener, enjoyed our conversation as well. Please leave comments about today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe. Uh, we love listening to feedback from you. We'll have lots of information about today's episode in the show notes. We want to just uh, let you know that next episode, we're going to talk about compassion fatigue awareness and burnout prevention, how we manage stress as clinicians and how that can impact our business. Um, this is one of the research areas that I've been a big part of in the last six years or so. And I'm really excited about this topic as much as you know, Sarah, how much I love this area. Oh, yes. This is something that you know so much about. And I'm really excited that we're going to be able to share some of that expertise with our listeners and really kind of do a deep dive. It seems like a, also just a good time in general. People are under a lot of stress right now. And I think that it's going to be really useful. I want to give a shout out to our music expert and mix mixer and master Eli Baumgarten, who is a phenomenal musician and 
has really helped bring this podcast together. He also happens to be my son, and I'm very proud of him. And Eli, I'm grateful for all the work that you've done in helping us put together this podcast. I know Sarah's grateful as well. Absolutely. And we are excited to have you aboard. And if those of you who are interested in music, which I would imagine would be everyone, Eli is just now dropping his new music on the streaming channel near you. He it goes by the name Eli Theo on his profile. And he just dropped his first vocal song called Lightspeed. Take a listen to it. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. We'll put that in the show notes as well, just for fun. And next week or next episode, we are going to talk about compassion fatigue awareness, burnout prevention, and stress management. One of my favorite topics, something I've been researching for over six years. So Sarah, I'm excited about that. I am too. I can't wait. Great. We'll see you, the listener, on the next episode.